Mark chapter 5, beginning at verse 25. Now, a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years. I'm reading out of the New King James Version if you're interested. Now, a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus immediately, knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, You see the multitude thronging you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see her who had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. The touch of God. Who here does not desire the touch of God? We all want that. We all covet the touch of the pierced hand on our lives. Each of us pray that His hand touches us our families, our church, our ministries. We covet God's blessed touch. And we bring our heart cries and our desperations to the Lord like Jairus of old who precedes this very text. As he said to Jesus, My daughter is even now dead, but come, lay thy hand upon her and she shall live. How many of you have prayed For a wayward child. Lord, lay thy hand upon my son's dead spirit and he shall live. Lord, my daughter is even now dead in her trespasses and sins. But come, lay thy hand upon her and she shall live. You've prayed that way, have you not? We often pray for our church. Lord, let your hand be upon Redeemer. Rightly that we should pray that. And how necessary, maybe even this morning, you need to pray, Lord, lay your hand upon my lukewarm heart and revive me. But in our text, the Lord does not touch the needy soul, rather the needy touched Him. A reversal of what was normal and perhaps a reversal in our way of Thinking, we pray for God's touch when perhaps we ought to draw near to God and touch Him. I'm not suggesting that you don't pray for the nearness of God. Absolutely not. It's not what I want you to hear me. But what I am suggesting is that our text demonstrates that we ought to add feet to our prayers. You want to draw near to, you want God to draw near to you? Then draw near to Him. Does our view of God's sovereignty perhaps make us less intentional about the touch of God? I want you to ponder that question. 
Is your view of God's providential sovereign control over all things make you less intentional in your pursuit of Him? Do we reason, well, He will extend His hand in power when He thinks the time is right, when He chooses? And perhaps we unconsciously think that there's no need to bother until He's ready. Now listen carefully. I do believe in God's sovereignty. It's the very cornerstone of my faith. How you could trust in a God that was less than sovereign. I believe in God's sovereign timing as well. But that should not minimize my hunger and thirst for His blessings and His nearness in my life. Whatever happened to the kind of doctrine about God's sovereignty that says God can bestow His blessing anytime. Why? Because He's sovereign. He has the power. He has the might to do so. And that He will bestow His blessing upon us when we seek Him with our whole heart. Have we a perverted view of God's providence that doesn't make room for Scriptures like This one, and ye shall seek me and find me when ye search for me with all your heart. My friend, are you seeking God with all your heart? If not, then your complaint against God is futile. God has not abandoned you. Question is, truly, sincerely, Have you abandoned Him? Have you drifted? How do we draw near to Christ? How do we press into the inner sanctuary, the sanctum sanctorum, the holy of holies? How do you know your God and meet with Him and experience Him so that you know your heart is full and revived? Well, before I try to answer that question, let me first begin by submitting for your consideration that the miracles of Jesus that are recorded in Scripture are strategic. And what I mean by that is this. When you look at the full documentation of the Gospels, you will discover that Jesus did thousands of miracles. We only have a select few. Why the select few that we do have? I think somewhat the answer can be heard in what John says at the end of his Gospel, chapter 21. He said that there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written, everyone, I suppose, that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Think of that. Now, Paul, excuse me, John is probably speaking hyperbole. He's simply trying to say he did many things that I can't tell you about. We don't have enough ink. I don't have enough parchment. There's no way I can tell you. And even in John's gospel, he limits the miracles, the recorded miracles of Jesus to seven, not including the resurrection of the Lord. Why? Why is it so few? Why is this one particular miracle in the Scriptures? Of the thousands that the Lord healed, why do we have the ones that we have? And I think the answer is found in what, again, 
the Apostle John calls miracles. He often calls them signs. Yes, the Bible uses the term miracles, but it often calls the miracles of Jesus signs. They are indicating, pointing to something outside of themselves, indicating something about Christ and His redemptive mission. And every miracle of our Lord that's recorded in the four Gospels are there strategically to tell you something about Christ and His redemptive mission and, frankly, something about you and me and our need of God. So this is what we have here. A sign pointing to something about our Lord and us and how we approach Him, how faith is operative in our approach to Jesus Christ. And in the case of this miracle, we not only see that, but we also see the plight of sinful mankind. This woman represents sinners, represents people outside of the covenant of grace at this present moment. And it also represents, I hope to make application this morning, to the plight of a church that has lost its vitality and to the individual Christian believer who has lost his first or her first love. Let me direct your attention to this, that this lady's plight is something like a church that's lost vitality or a Christian that has lost their devotion to Christ. This woman had experienced vitality at one time. Look at verse 25 again. She had experienced good health. At a certain woman, verse 25, which had an issue of blood 12 years. The text is clear. She didn't always have this condition. She was not born with it. She'd had it for the last 12 years. There was a time in her life when her health was robust, when she was able and fit, when health was not a concern of hers. But now, for these last 12 years, Her vitality, her vim, her vigor had evaporated, had left her. Now she is in this sickened and weak condition. That hadn't always been the case. Now that which she had taken for granted, she no longer takes for granted. Her health. You know, that's often what I hear. I've had a lot of people over the years say, Preacher, who were in a sick condition, afflicted, don't take your health for granted. I took it for granted, and now that I don't have it, oh, how I miss it. And it's true, we don't think about our good health when we are healthy. But once it's gone, then you think about it. And here she is, desperate, sick, afflicted. I wonder if there is any Christian here, any child of God who would say, yes, I have seen better days spiritually. I remember a time when my vitality in the Lord was stronger than it is this present hour. I remember when my heart was aflame in love for God. Oh, I long for those days. I've taken it for granted. And so often it happens that after you experience the greatest spiritual victories, you will often experience the greatest temptations. How many of you seem to be riding high? You are walking in the joy of the Lord on a consistent basis. Your prayer life is vital. Your scripture reading is alive. Let me warn you. 
There will come an hour when that will not seem to be so again. What will you do then? Will you press in? Will you look for the Master? Will you aggressively seek Him? She had turned, before she turned to the Lord, to human resources for her vitality. Look at verse 26. And had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She reminds me of so many of us in so many churches that I've seen over the years. They think that the key to revival is some new method or some new program. One of the things that's used most often today is music. I've heard it all over and over. So many times I'm sick of it. The church decides, you know, we're not growing, we're not reaching young people like we ought to. We need to revamp our music program and attract more people. And they turn to human resources, just like this woman. My friend, that's not the secret to reaching people for Jesus Christ. Music is not the answer. I'm thankful for good worship music. I enjoy new songs and I enjoy even instrumentation. I would have desired to have a full orb orchestra if I could have one. I like all of that. That's not the key to spiritual vitality. That's not the answer. Let me tell you another often resource. And this one will surprise you. Are you ready for it? Make sure you're awake to hear it. Correct doctrine. Are you surprised? We are living in a generation where we have seen a resurgence of biblical preaching and teaching for which we must thank God. You at Redeemer have experienced that. Solid pulpit ministry, teaching the gospel. Someone told me just a few moments ago before the service, they've been watching the American gospel documentary that was produced a couple of years ago and they just come out with a second one. And these kinds of teachings and resources have been very helpful. We're grateful to God for them. But listen very carefully. Correct doctrine alone will not revitalize your church or your walk with God. Won't happen. It can't happen. Wasn't intended to happen. You need more than just correct doctrine. I thank God for it. We need it. It's necessary. It's essential to the walk with Christ. But my friend, there's more to it. I thought many years ago when I was 33 years old and pastoring Oak Grove Baptist Church, truly backslidden, divisive church, I didn't want to go there, to be quite frank. They asked me three times if I would consider Being their pastor, I told them no all three times. I knew what kind of church it was. It run off pastors. The decade before I came, the average tenure of a pastor was 18 months. My predecessor lasted it, uh, toughed it out more than anyone else. He stayed three and a half years, but he jumped out of the frying pan into the fire because he knew they were going to vote him out. Why would I want to go pastor a folk like that? But God said, you're to go, and I went. Not happily, begrudgingly, I went. 
Oh my, the problems. Before I got there at a business meeting, two deacons got in a fist fight. That's the kind of church it was. Bad doctrine, they no more understood the gospel than any rank sinner on the street. They thought they did. They had a form of it, but it was polluted and corrupted. Easy believism filled the church roles. People were coming to church and even in leadership positions had never been truly converted. And I thought, now that I'm here, God, okay, you sent me here. I didn't want to come. I'm here now. That if I just preached the gospel, if I just had my doctrine, give them the right doctrine, that would change this church. That that would revolutionize it. They haven't heard the truth. They'll hear the truth and the truth shall set them free. Isn't that what Jesus said? Of course He said that. But I didn't understand what He really meant by that. And we preached doctrine to them for seven years until God knocked on my door again and said, you're building this church on you, not me. And He stripped me for over a year showing me that it takes more than just correct doctrine. Human resources are not sufficient. Some of you are struggling right now, and rightly so. Because you too had the same, have the same philosophy that I had. If we are doctrines right, everything else is good. We've made knowledge the epitome of spiritual maturity. And we're missing the spirit of the living God. We're missing the power of God and His glory, friends. What about the church at Ephesus? They had some good preaching. And they had celebrity pastors. Paul the Apostle planted the church and was there longer than any other place he served. Three and a half years. They had Timothy talk about another celebrity. And finally, another big name. The Apostle John was their pastor for years. But now in his elderly years on the Isle of Patmos, the Lord appears to him and says, I want you to write a letter to that your previous pastorate. And I want you to tell him a few things. And what did he say? He says, I know your works, your labors, your patience, and that you cannot bear with those who are evil. And you have tested those that say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. In other words, I congratulate you. You've got wonderful doctrine. You've got your theological precepts down correctly. You're theologically correct, but you've left, you've lost something. You've left your first love. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, I spend half of my ministry trying to get people to understand that doctrine is essential. I spend the other half of my ministry telling them, trying to persuade them that doctrine's not enough. And we have experienced a great resurgence of gospel, sovereign grace truths. But dear friends, it's not enough. Something more important. And that is the experience of Jesus Christ of which those doctrines lead us. God has given you the Word. He has given you good doctrine theology so that you may know Him and know Him in the power of His resurrection, fellowship of His sufferings, being made conformable unto His death. This book is a book that leads you to a person not to great academic knowledge. 
human resources are not enough. You'll still be spiritually dry. One of the grievous things as I go from church to church, conference to conference preaching, is I get about around a bunch of people who are so theologically correct, they know how to dot their I's and cross their T's, but they're as dead and dry as last year's corn shucks. No spiritual vitality, no power. The prayer lives suffer. You talk about corporate prayer meetings and they don't know what you're talking about. We've replaced them with Bible studies. No wonder the life of God. No wonder our children don't want to come to our churches. There's nothing there. There's no life. There's no power. There's no energy from heaven. It's all human. Human energy saves no one, but damns anyone who trusts in it. Something else this dear woman teaches us. The power is not in just drawing near God either. Go back to verse 30 and 31. The power is not in just drawing near to Jesus. And Jesus immediately knowing in Himself that power had gone out of Him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? Luke simply says that Jesus asked, Who touched me? But his disciples said to him, you see the multitude thronging you and you say, who touched me? Luke records this. Master, the multitudes throng and press, press you. In other words, there were many people pressing in on Jesus that morning or day. He was surrounded by so many people that the disciples with Peter as their spokesman, almost mocked Jesus. <laughs> All these people are pressing in on you and you're asking who touched me? That's a ridiculous question, Lord. That was the import of what he was trying to say. Why are you asking something? How can I know there's several people touching you right now? Just drawing near to Jesus is not your answer. Again, I know another startling statement. But this is what the text shows us. Many draw near to God. Some of you draw near to God when you come through these doors. You want to get a little closer to God, and so you come. You do what's, you go through the, the liturgy of the service this morning. You've sang, you've sung the hymns, you've prayed the prayers. You, you feel like by doing so, you are now closer to God and you will leave thinking that you have done your spiritual duty unto God. You've drawn near. Some people are always confused. I've been asked recently, well, how do you understand 1 Corinthians 7 when it talks about the husband being unconverted to a godly believing wife and her children, that they are sanctified, the, unbelie the unbelievers in her home? It doesn't mean that there's something special about her power and walk with God that sets her children and her unsaved husband apart. No, it simply means they're closer to God by being with somebody who's indwelled by God. It's temple language. It's Old Testament worship language. The temple was sanctified. It was set apart for the purpose of God. And when you drew near to the temple, that's what you were doing by your gesture of coming. Drawing near to God. Many draw near to God through prayer. 
Many a good Christian draws near by prayer, but they leave the prayer closet unchanged. How many times have you prayed, but you felt nothing? How many times have you gone to prayer seeking an answer, and nothing happened? How many times have you prayed the prayers, and your life was no different than before? My friend, the power is not just in drawing near. We draw near all the time. Christians are drawing near to God all the time. When you open your Bible, you're certainly there in a position where you could experience God. But do you? Do you find God in the Scriptures? When I get up in the morning to read my Bible, it's not because I need to check off that duty for the day and feel good about my walk with God. No, I get up and open my Bible so that I can find God in the Scriptures and hear His voice to me. You say, hear His voice. We don't hear God. God doesn't speak like that. Don't you tell me that. This book is a living book. These are the words of God. But the words of God alone have no power in my life until the wind of the Spirit blows on them. What do I mean? The Spirit. The very author. The author takes the same word and he brings faith and he well, in that experience is an encounter with God. That's what I'm reading my Bible for. Do you read your Bible that way? Or do you read a chapter a day to keep the devil away? Is that your intent? Well, you get what you believe for. I want to meet with God. We, we as Christians are drawing near to Him in our actions, in our words, but we leave like these people who were touching Jesus untouched. Nothing happens to the, nothing happened to those crowds that were thronging and pressing in on him. Maybe they too had illnesses. Maybe they were suffering affliction. Maybe they had problems in their home. But nothing happened when they brushed up against Jesus. But Jesus felt power. He felt power leave his body when that woman touched him. Why her and not the others? They were pressing. They wanted to hear Him. They wanted to see His miracles. They had needs as well. But they didn't get their needs met. Pressing in. So much of what we do in the church is just empty and hollow. And there's no life in it. The power is not in just feeling God's presence either. Here they were in the very presence of God in flesh. Here they were. Maybe they didn't know He was the Messiah, but they sure knew He wasn't an ordinary man. They knew there was something completely different about Him. And many in that throng of people that day knew and believed that, yeah, we think He is the Messiah. They were in the presence of God. Nothing happened to them. Sunday after Sunday, we come to this place. We meet with God. We experience His presence, don't you? I mean, did you not feel something of God here this morning already? Some of the songs that were sung were really uplifting. They were edifying. They spoke to our hearts. The prayers. My brother prayed a very simple prayer, but I felt God in it. And the Scriptures were read, and I sensed God speaking to me when Alvin read the Scripture this morning. We've experienced His presence here, but that doesn't mean the power has filled us. 
You can even feel God's presence and still leave unchanged. Because feelings is not where it's at. The cults emphasize feelings and experience. The Mormons have their strangely heartwarming experience. The devil will make you feel any experience you want to have. We're not here, and I'm not talking about seeking some experience completely different than what I want to communicate to you. Often we experience the presence of God, but this experience leaves us unchanged. No, we need something more than that. We need to press into God by faith. And so the only way to touch God and receive power is seen in this woman. She's a lesson for prayer, if I can say that. She's a lesson for prayer. Jesus gave us a kingdom principle. Here it is. Ask and it shall be given you. Now I know that that isn't a blank check. An open promise to answer every request including those outside of God's will. But it is a general principle of the kingdom. God's giving is inseparably linked with our asking. It's for us to ask. It's for Him to give. And that is the spiritual rule by which He operates His kingdom here and now. Now I want you to notice this woman and see the distinctives of the kind of prayer that God responds to. The kind of asking where He's obligated to give. Number one, she approached Him with great desire. Great desire. Look at verse... Twenty-seven. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. Why? Why is she doing this? When Jesus discovers her, she's trembling, afraid. She feels like she has done something wrong. Why? Why is she even willing to violate her conscience in this regard? Because she needs something. She's desiring something badly. In Mark chapter 11, verse 24, if you want to turn, you might. And follow along. I'm going to camp out just for a few moments here. It's certainly a supportive text to the, to the text we're preaching from this morning. Mark 11:24. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. I ask people this question all the time. When do you believe God answered your prayers? When do you believe God answers your prayers? And you know the the most uh, number one answer I get? Well, when I get the answer. That's when I know God has answered my prayers. And then I like to say to them, well, friend, the devil can do that. Any demon in hell could do that. It doesn't take much genius to know that your prayer has been answered and to believe it was answered when you get the answer. That's not what Jesus says here, is it? Look at it again. Therefore, I say to you, what things soever you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will, you will, future tense, have them. You believe you have them before you have them. That's when you get them. 
But before I focus on that, I need not skip over the word ask because this is where I'm here at this text. Things you ask when you pray. The word here, ask, doesn't just mean to make a request. There's another Greek word for that. This is a different word. It's a stronger word. It's a word that means to crave, to desire intently, or even to beg. Beg. You want this thing so badly, you're willing to humiliate yourself. You know, there's something instinctive to human nature that doesn't want to beg. You remember the kids' playground? You remember the guy sitting on your back saying, if you just say uncle, I'll let you up. I have two boys, and we would wrestle when they were small. They're not small now. They're 34 and 32, and they outweigh me. But when they were younger, I could pin both of them. My oldest would say uncle almost immediately. But the youngest one, I could never, ever get him to say uncle. Never! He wore me out waiting. I would just, I would give up before he would. There was just something in his DNA, his personality that just didn't want to beg or give up in this regard. That didn't want to be vanquished. When a man is vanquished in his pride, he will then beg, will he not? But not until. When you beg, it's a pretty serious situation. And Jesus is using this kind of word, to crave, to desire. That's why in the old King James authorized version, it says it this way, Therefore I say unto you, what things soever ye desire when you pray. I think the, the authorized version got it right. I think that's really the import of what Jesus is saying. When you desire something so intently, ah, you're on the right path to really praying. When you desire. Again, and ye shall seek me and find me when ye shall search for me with all your heart. All your heart. God wants you to want Him. Period. End of story. No more to be said. I have conveyed this to you already in the sermon two times ago. That God wants to be wanted. He doesn't need you. He doesn't want you out of a sense of a need or lack. No. It's a relationship of love. And prayer is works off of that same love relationship. You desire, He desires to bless. Now here's where the prosperity guys are half right. But we, in fear of being polluted in our doctrine, if a heretic says it, We dismiss everything he says. And that's not wise. As you've heard the old statement, the proverb, a blind hog finds an acorn now and then. You see, heresies ride the back of half-truths. That's why people believe them. If there was no truth at all, well, they probably wouldn't have a large following. But there is a half-truth. And here it is. God is good. And He delights in giving. He is not stingy. Now you can believe that truth because that's biblical. God is good and He's good how long? All the time. 
It's a part of his nature. He cannot change. As, as Mickey told us this morning, if God could change, he would no longer be God because he then would no longer be perfect. God is always good. Even in the display of his wrath, he's good. Dear friend, listen to me. God is not going to whine. He's not going to be squeamish when he sends you to hell because you rejected him. His love motivates his justice and judgment. There'll be no weeping, there'll be no tears from the Lord when you are banished to the place of the demons and devil. It will be the love of God motivating him for all of his creation and for his glorious name to constrict you to the lower parts of that pit. God is good even in the dispensing of His judgment. There's nothing evil, nothing bad, no shadow of turning, no variableness with God. And God is a benefactor that loves to bless His beneficiaries when they desire it enough. God is after your heart. And here we're now when we speak of the word desire in the realm of the heart. She desired. How often we say we desire to see people saved. Yes, amen. I want to one day come when not all, not, not all of these chairs are filled. No, no. I don't want to come when all of these chairs are filled. I want to come when the, all the chairs that are not sitting up here, seated up here today are filled. And I want to see It's my prayer for you all that there will be a harvest in this area and that you will gather in the sheaves of God, those who He's chosen before the foundation of the world, to gather them in, that He will grant you that. We desire that. We long for that. But I want to ask you one diagnostic question. How great is that desire? How strong is it? Can I confess? They say confession is good for the soul. I pastored that church, Oak Grove, for 23 years. We saw reformation and revival, different seasons. I wanted to see people saved. And there were times I was so hungry that I could not help but pray. I was driven to prayer. Because I wanted to see it. But then there were also times I wanted to see it, but I wasn't desiring it greatly. There's more than just desire here. There's a second thing we see in this woman that's also an element of godly prayer that moves God's heart. Desperation. She was desperate. There was no one else to help her. She had exhausted all hopes. There was no remedy There was no hope for this woman. Desperation moved her. My friend, I ask you, how desperate are you to see people converted here? Back to Oak Grove. I was desperate during certain seasons, but not all the time. I would try to teach my people the importance of Wanting to see people saved, witnessing to people. I would talk it. I would certainly explain it and share the vision for it. 
There were a lot of nights I lay comfortably in my bed, not concerned about one soul going to hell. I'm talking about a desperation grip in your heart that sometimes sleep evaporates. You're robbed of it because the desire is so strong. I'm talking about a desire so great that food doesn't interest you. You've got to be alone with God pleading for souls until God gives you an inkling that He's heard your prayer. And the answers come in your heart whether you've got it in your hand or not. That's the kind of desperation this woman had. And that's the kind of desperation that moves God towards you. Because that's the kind of desperation that moves you to Him. What about that importune widow of Luke 18? Remember her? She went to the unjust judge begging day after day for justice. What happened? The unjust just said, though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her lest by her continual coming she weary me. She got what she wanted. Why? She was desperate. About the friend at midnight, Jesus teaching the apostles on prayer. They've asked for a lesson. He gives them an illustration. A friend at midnight has a friend, uh, a neighbor has some company coming in. They've traveled a long ways. He doesn't have anything to feed them. Now, why is that a big deal? At midnight, you'd say, good to have you all here. Let me show you where the bedroom is. Good night. But no, not in that culture. In that culture, it was imperative. If you were going to honor your guest, you fed them something on their arrival. And there are cultures still like that today. I've been in some of them. Believe you me. I made pastoral visits with the pastor one time. It was in the early afternoon and went stretched all the way to evening. I ate four evening dinners that day. Oh, it was miserable. Because that's the hospitality. That's the custom. As it was here. He had somebody come. At midnight, he had nothing to eat. And so he knew that his friend lived next door. He could go to his house and he could get the necessary food. What happens? He says, go away. I'm in bed with my children. Come back in the morning. I'll give you all you want. But what does he do? He continues to knock. He does not give up. He's desperate until what? Until the neighbor gets out of the bed and gives him what he desires. Desperate. That's what Jesus is teaching us. Not only desire, but desire with desperation that you, like Jacob of old, will seize upon God and say, I will not turn you loose until you bless me. That's what God's after. That's the kind of praying he's looking for. The Syrophoenician woman whose daughter was demon-possessed. You talk about a lesson in how to pray correctly. Jesus ignores her. Completely doesn't even answer. Acts like if she's not even there. And then when He does talk to her, He calls her a name. A little dog. She didn't even rate as a, to be a big dog. She's called a little dog. And what does she do? She starts barking. Yes, Lord, but even the dogs get the crumbs from the children's table. Great is your faith, woman, be it unto you. Desperation. As soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. Where's that kind of intense desire that leads to desperation? Are you desperate for God again? Don't you miss Him? Don't you miss the, miss the conscious awareness of His presence with you continually? Don't you miss the joy and the peace that you experienced at one time or another 
What? What will restore it? A prayer? No. Most of our prayers are just that. We're just saying prayers. They're not true prayer. They're not filled with hearts of desire or desperation. There's no yearning. There's no affection of the heart for the things we ask. We're just going through the motions because that's what we've been taught to do. When we repent, what do we do? We just say, oh God, I'm sorry. And there's no godly sorrow breaking the heart. Is there desperation? And then thirdly, she approached Christ in faith. And now I need to again explain faith because all of us know this word, but so many of us truly know it. Back to Mark chapter 5, verse 27. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment, for she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Where did she get this kind of faith? Well, it's right there in the text. When she heard about Jesus. She heard the truth of Christ. How shall they believe unless they hear? Says the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 10. And she just heard testimonies about Jesus. And it was enough. It created faith. Faith leapt in her heart by the word that she had heard about Jesus. You see, faith is always linked to the Word of God. And faith is the only way in which you can receive from Him. In Matthew chapter 21, verse 22, Jesus said this, And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Jesus did not say, And whatever things you ask in prayer, you will receive. No, no. He qualifies it with one word. Whatever things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. Again, Mark eleven twenty four. Let me go back to that text. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. When do you believe you have received? When you get the answer? No. That's not the way faith operates. You believe before you receive. Because faith is implanted in the heart by the Word of God. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence, the argumentation, the proof of things not seen. God puts it in your heart so that you have it in your heart before you have it in your hand. Now you know God has heard your prayer. How many times have you had that experience? You prayed, you prayed, and all of a sudden, just something happens. It dawns on you. He heard me. He heard me. Yes! And there's a joy, there's a celebration, there's worship, there's praise. Because at that moment, you knew. You got it. He answered. Even though it hadn't happened yet. I can tell you countless stories like that. Go to God in prayer. Having no indication, no clue how He's going to do it. But pray. And God does something in my heart. What does He do? I don't know how He does it. All I know is He does. What does He do? He puts the Word in your heart and that Word produces faith. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. In John chapter 14 through 16, Jesus states in four separate texts 
Five assurances that He will answer prayer. In John 14, verse 13, listen, let's look at these real quickly to support what we're trying to communicate this morning. John 14, 13. And whatever you ask in My name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. This is the first of these four occasions where He promises answered prayer. He states it five times in these four different texts that He or the Father will answer your request. The next one's John 14, 14, the very next verse. If you ask anything in My name, I will do it. And then in the 15th chapter, verse 7, He says, If you abide in Me, and My words abide in you, You will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. There's the word desire again. And in your ESVs, it's even stronger, I think. It's the word wish. Whatever you wish. Man, that sounds like a prosperity preacher, doesn't it? Whatever you wish. Now again, Jesus is not advocating just whatever you want. You can ask God. He qualifies it, doesn't He? You would never ask of God something that's not in the Father's will if you are abiding in Christ and His Word is abiding in you. That's what He says in the first part of this verse. If you abide in Me and My words abide in you, you shall ask what you desire because your desires are being fomented, created and formed by the Word of God in us. But it shall be done of you. And then look at verse 16 of the same 15th chapter. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Amen. God wants you to be fruitful, Redeemer. He wants this church to be bountiful in its fruit bearing. And so what we need to do is start organizing mission teams. And we need to, we need to have this campaign and this campaign. Because we will promise, we're promised to be fruitful, so if we'll just go do it, then we'll have fruit. Keep reading. And that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. That is a connector. It's a result. This, you do this, this is the result. I used to think, if I could just preach to my church good doctrine. That'll bring the power of God on the church. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus said, it's by asking the Father in Jesus' name that you get the fruit. Fruitfulness is through prayer. So that when I stood in the pulpit, as I am this morning, And anything happens, it's a result of what has happened in the prayer closet. Fruitfulness happens there. When we leave the closet of prayer, we just reap the spoils that God has given us in answer to faith. Do you see that? Does this make sense? If we want to see souls saved, we need to call some prayer meetings. With the understanding that prayer is not just doing it, is not what's going to bring the fruitfulness. It's praying with desire that leads to desperation, that believes that only God can do this, but not only that He can, but that He will. 
that He will. Sometimes we pray like the leper who came to Jesus and said, Lord, I know You're able. Will You heal me? Isn't that like a lot of our prayers? We know God can do anything. We know He could answer the prayer if He wanted to. That's the key. Is it God's will? I don't know if it is. Well, friend, you can pray with as much faith then as if you already know what God's will is. How? Because it's God's will. Listen, please listen to this next statement. so important. It can change your life. It is God's will to always, always, always answer your prayer. Always. Never. Will God let prayer go unanswered that's prayed in faith? He said, but what kind of faith comes to God when you don't know if it's His will? The kind that knows it gets an answer? Because even if the answer is no, it's never no, period. It's no, comma, I've got something better for you. Why? Because God loves to bless His people and He's good to them. So when you don't know what to pray for, pray and ask for it anyway, knowing God will give you an answer and wait for the answer. And if it's no, I've got something better, then find something else to pray for. And if God says, yes, it's mine, then you've got your answer. You now know. You can now believe. You can now trust. You can walk in faith for that thing. Am I making sense? I I really wrestled with the Lord. Lord, are you sure this is the sermon for this morning? Because it takes a spiritually mature people to handle this kind of a sermon. So God must deem you spiritually mature. I'm sure not all of you, but most of you in this room can, can perceive what I'm saying. So, as I bring this message to somewhat of a conclusion, how does my faith in God grow so that I can pray with this kind of desire and desperation? Well, number one, you've got to actually see that you praying is not the answer. It's God's goodness. It's God Himself. Prayer is not manipulative. I told you that two sermons ago. We don't use prayer. To overcome some reluctance in God. God's more willing to bless you than you are to be blessed. Faith in God, not in your prayers, is the answer. And the only way your faith will increase in God is that you get better acquainted with Him. You've got to know Him. Do you ever think with assurance and ponder on the glory of God and His magnificence Don't you agree that our prayers are so often ineffectual and fruitless, even prayerless? Our prayers are prayerless because we don't realize the great and exceeding riches of His glory. We've got to learn to think bigger thoughts about God because your biggest thoughts, your greatest theology is trivialities compared to the fullness of who God is. What infirmities has God brought into your life? You see, for years, I would curse some of my weaknesses because I thought if I could be just like that man or this man, then I could be successful in the ministry. I could be fruitful. And as I look at this woman 
I see that God brought infirmity into her life for one purpose. Not that she would be well and healthy, but that she would have an encounter with God. That's it. And God brought a lot of things in my... And it wasn't physical so much, mostly never, hardly. But things that I cannot talk to you about today, internal issues, infirmities, where I longed to see God work and felt that God had somehow disadvantaged me. Anyone here feel God has disadvantaged you? He's given the better gifts to others that you're not so great in the kingdom of God and that your possibilities are few. Those infirmities are God's way of creating desperation and desire in your life. Because left to you, you'll never desire what God wants for you, even as a child of God. I've learned that over the years. You know, I should be further along than I am at my age. And I'm not that old, but I'm a lot older than some of you. And I should be further along than what you think I am. I'm not as spiritual as you think I am. I should be much further down the road. But I have learned. I have learned. Through those infirmities. That if God didn't bring them and introduce them to my life. I wouldn't be as far as I am now. Because left to me, I would never desire to the intent that He wants. And I would never be desperate to the degree I need to be. So whatever God's doing in your life today that creates need, thank Him for it. Take advantage of it. Let God develop within you a desperation when you know that only He can meet you in that hour and in that need. And that He will, He will, even if you can only touch the hem of His garment. If that's all you can press into, you can't touch His hands, you can't touch His head, you can't touch His hand or arm, but you can touch the hem of His garment, then my dear friend, start pressing. Start pressing. He will be found of you when you seek Him with all your heart. And power will come into you by Him. There is a New Testament verse you ought to live by. And God's sovereignty and your understanding, it should not minimize this verse. God has a principle. Draw nigh to God. And He will draw nigh to you. Now, I ask you a simple question with it. I will conclude. Who comes first? Draw nigh to God. Well, certainly James says it's I. Me, I am to draw nigh to God. And then He will draw nigh to me. That's the principle there. You can't twist those words. Don't even try. That's foolish. Take God at His word. It's what it means. And if it doesn't line up with your system, get rid of your system. Stick with the Scriptures. Theological systems are fine until they contradict God's word. Or you have to twist Scripture in order to keep your system alive. Draw nigh to God. You shall find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Who goes first? 
whose efforts are recorded first. Yes, mine. But you will discover once you find him that he was there drawing you all along. Some of you don't have even that happening right now. You don't have God's activity in you drawing you, creating that desire. I, if you are truly a Christian, why aren't you not on your face right now saying, Oh God, I need you to touch me today. I'm more desperate than I realize. I didn't even know that I needed you as bad as I do. My apathy, my unconcern has been exposed. Didn't draw near to Him. He will draw nigh to you. And power will go out of Him into you. You'll be made whole. If we truly want to experience God in fuller measures, we have to start with our hearts. And we have to deal with the lack of desire and desperation. That's where you start. And there's nothing you can do to increase it. Let me tell you. Are you with me? Still with me? I've been long. You can't. In, you just can't go into tinkering into your heart and just like there's a dial and just start ratcheting up the dial and increase desire for God. It doesn't work. That's humanity. That's flesh. And if you sow to the flesh, you will reap corruption. And yet so many times that's what we do. We hear a message just like this. We get guilty. We come under condemnation. And we'll say, okay, I'm going to get up 30 minutes earlier tomorrow morning and I'm going to seek you, Lord. Thinking that that's what I'm talking about. No, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about coming to the absolute awareness and knowledge that apart from God's intervention, you're desperate. You're in bad way. That you can't even increase the affections of your heart for God. You need to experience God's love first. That you will experience His desire and affection for you and that will inflame your heart. You will go tomorrow morning or this afternoon and you will get alone with God because you know God is the only one who can solve this problem. Not all your prayers are sighs or tears as the psalm writer said. Only God can do this. Amen. Our Father, we thank You that You call us. You call us to Yourself. You call us to seek You. But Lord, we are very poor seekers. We get distracted by a hundred and one different things. The flesh, the world, the devil. Our own thoughts distract us. But we're here this morning, all of us, including me, Lord, we're here before you. We know we will never, ever, with the intensity of the heart as it ought to be, seek you. We're asking you to fix our hearts right now by causing your great love by the Holy Spirit to be poured out into us God, draw us to Yourself. But here we are. We're coming. We're seeking. I pray that You cultivate desire and desperation in these people's lives, this church, until, Lord, they are fully persuaded that only God can do it. Only You can do it. And they will find You when they seek You with all of their heart.
Father, for those who are not Christians in this room, I'm sure that there's a lot of things they didn't understand about this sermon, but I do believe there were some things they heard about their heart too, that they really don't want you nor desire you. At least the Christian has been given a new heart that does have some desire for you and has some affection, but they don't even have that. Lord, I pray that you will so reveal yourself to that person or persons that they will see who they really are and they will be afraid. Show them themselves by showing them Jesus. Create a godly fear, even the fear of bondage that would drive them to you. And then, Lord, set them free from that binding fear into perfect love. Save to the uttermost, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.